Welcome to Meet the Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. As with all of these programs, we gathered community-based medical oncologists to present de-identified cases from their practices to our faculty for their impromptu comments. To begin, Dr. Stephen Papish presents a challenging case to Drs. Nancy Davidson, Martine Picard, and Edith Perez. This is a 65-year-old Gravita Zero Power Zero patient who was found on her routine mammography to have a vague abnormality in the left breast. An ultrasound was performed and was suspicious for a 1.3-centimeter hypoechoic area. Needle biopsy under ultrasound guidance was positive for an infiltrating lobular carcinoma. The characteristics were strongly estrogen receptor positive, uh, 100% on IHC, progesterone receptor positive, 90%, and HER2 was not performed by FISH but was negative by IHC0. An initial excisional biopsy was performed after that biopsy, and that showed what was surprising to the surgeon because it could not really be appreciated at surgery, but the excised tissue was over at least a six-centimeter area and contained on 35 of 37 slides infiltrating lobular carcinoma. So the presumption was that the size microscopically was at least five centimeters, if not somewhat larger. And a sentinel node was negative at that time. Can you talk a little bit about the woman herself and what her lifestyle was like and what her attitude was as you dealt with her? She was accompanied by her husband, who's a lawyer. She is a special education teacher. They have an adopted daughter. She had never been pregnant, as I mentioned. And their attitude was clearly, at this point, that they wanted whatever potentially aggressive treatment was needed for her disease. Did she express any concerns about chemotherapy or any personal experiences with people with chemotherapy? She had actually come to my office with the expectation that she was going to receive chemotherapy. I threw her a curveball, which we'll talk about in a minute. But she had come to the office expecting to be treated with chemotherapy. And how did she feel about that? She was resigned, and she expected to do whatever she needed to do to improve her chances for survival. Were she and her husband the kind of people who are out there on the Internet trying to get as much information, or were they more, tell us what to do, doctor? Surprisingly, despite the fact that they were both highly educated, they were not on the Internet and did not come with any preconceived information that they had obtained themselves. So we want to ask the faculty a couple questions. One, what would you be thinking about in terms of specific therapeutic options for this woman with an unexpectedly large but no negative tumor? And would you consider or want to order the Oncotype assay? And would you consider even putting her in the Taylor X trial? Nancy? So that infiltrating lobular carcinoma, of course, is not surprising when you talk about her exactly. presenting situation with this kind of diffuse involvement and this disconnect maybe between her imaging and the pathology. You know, when I look at a postmenopausal woman, she first of all screams to me the need for hormone therapy, and I think we can all agree that she would be a candidate for endocrine therapy. And probably in this day and age, we might think about starting with an aromatase inhibitor. I wouldn't a priori be considering chemotherapy as sort of a requirement for her, and I would think about it for the Taylor X trial. I think this would be a great opportunity for her, and I would think about the Oncotype assay both to go into that trial and to help guide her choices. So you have a 5-centimeter node-negative tumor. If the Oncotype were low, you'd be comfortable avoiding chemotherapy? I would. I think that the initial reports from the NSABP trial suggested that size didn't matter. Now, I realize that there probably weren't a lot of 5-centimeter tumors on that particular trial, but I think the biology here is if the oncotype is low, probably pretty favorable. 
And it's not clear if you look carefully at some of the trials that have been done that chemotherapy is going to add a whole lot to it. And are you putting patients on the Taylor trial yourself? We are. And how do you find people responding to that, particularly the idea of the randomization to chemo versus not if they have an intermediate score? Yeah, so Neil, that is an interesting question for all of us. I've been in practice long enough that I participated in some of the randomized trials of adjuvant chemotherapy for node-negative breast cancer. And remember, those trials were chemo versus not. It was a difficult discussion then. It isn't any easier now, but it takes a lot of time. I guess our experience has been that women whose oncotype comes out smack in the middle are pretty good about randomization. Sometimes people whose oncotype is on either fringe are maybe not quite so comfortable about it. But it's a very important trial, I think, and we're supporting it very strongly. Are you finding that most people that you discuss the trial with are okay with going in it, or most aren't? I think most people are willing to get involved in the trial. And of course, where the tough discussions come is after you have the oncotype result, if you're in that randomization zone, that's where the difficult part is. I have had a few people, though, who have had low or high oncotype and surprisingly chose not to listen to that. Let me go on to you, Edith, and ask you same question. What are your thoughts about this lady? I think this is a great case to start with because even though Nancy is going to be the next president of ASCO, I wouldn't really follow exactly the same approach that Nancy is following. I hope you'd put her on the TaylorX trial. Oh, yeah, we can talk about that. Yeah, yeah. You know, our usual approach for a patient like this one is really chemotherapy followed by hormonal therapy. And we used the data from the SWOG intergroup trial that looked at, it was a non-taxing regimen, but the one that looked at CAF plus minus tamoxifen in a concurrent or sequential in not positive setting, demonstrating the tremendously beneficial effect of adding the chemotherapy to the tamoxifen. So we've used that as the pivotal trial to guide our practice. However, we now have the opportunity of looking at the data from the Oncotype DX And indeed, within this technology, is fascinating. It's important to remember, however, a few issues related to the data. They include that the majority of the chemotherapy given in that trial was methotrexate, 5-fluorouracil, or CMF-based chemotherapy. Now, you're talking about the NSABP B20 study that was tied into the oncotype. That is right. So we have to be, I think, a little judicious related to saying that the oncotype DX will be as predictive when we use other chemotherapy, it would be nice to have another study using another chemotherapy to be certain of this issue. Number two, in that initial study, the NSABPB20, indeed, there were very few patients who had tumors that were large. The majority of patients had T2 tumors, which actually can be even extended to the other situation that we encounter, which are patients with tumors that are 0.9 centimeters, 0.8 centimeters, in which we really want to know if they need to receive chemotherapy. And there were very few of those patients also enrolled in the NSABP B20 and the B14 trial. So I'm very careful, although I believe, like Nancy, that biology will dictate eventually what happens. This particular patient had a tumor that was undetected, apparently by physical examination. It was found incidentally on mammogram. And that actually lets me believe that in terms of the biology, this is an insidious tumor. So I can have a theory that there will be more cancer besides what it was seen in the breast specimen, although the sentinel node was negative. What was the grade of this tumor? It was intermediate grade. Of course, yeah. Related to our experience with the Oncotype DX, we are very supportive of this trial because we think, you know, 2007, this time is the time to really look at the potential of using these predictors to change practice. As we introduce the protocol to patients, they're very receptive to the idea. You know, it's easy to get the report back, so it's not that it takes a month, which is nice. 
However, the randomization portion has been a little bit difficult for us, and also the explanation of the parameters we've used in the protocol for determining what's intermediate, because they're different than what's in the package insert of the test, which creates some confusion for our patients. Because as you recall, in the approval package, score of greater than 18, that's kind of the cutoff over there for intermediate or grade, or intermediate or high, but in the trial we're using 11, which people don't seem to understand very well in terms of why did you come up with the number of 11 for the lower cutoff instead of 18? And it was really based on the graph showing the continued relapse related to the recurrent score. But we have to explain this a little bit extra to our patients. Can I sort of cut to the chase and find out what do you think you would likely recommend to this woman? Chemotherapy followed by an aromatase inhibitor. What type of chemotherapy? I would recommend a taxane-based chemotherapy. I would recommend AC followed by taxane. And which then, taxane and which schedule? We like to use, based on a lot of data, either AC once every two weeks or every three weeks, and the baclitaxel, we use it weekly or every two weeks. And would you order an archetype or ask her about going in the trial? I could talk to her about the trial, but I wouldn't because in this patient, I would not rely on the Ocotab DA to make the decision because of the size of this breast cancer. If the tumor were 1.2 centimeters? Yes, definitely. I would then really endorse the trial much stronger. Dr. Bacard, any comments? I have first a comment regarding the surgery because I think that with such a big tumor, the sentinel node procedure might not be safe. And so I think a question could be for this woman whether she doesn't need an axillary dissection. There's a little more information to come. Okay. But that would be the first point I would discuss with the surgeon. Could I just pick up on that with Nancy? Do you agree with that? I think we all agree she needs more surgery. You told us the margins were positive or negative. Positive. Positive. So you know she's going to go back to the OR. I would wonder whether she was headed towards a mastectomy, and you'll tell us in a moment. And once they're in there for the mastectomy, they may have snagged a few more lymph nodes for you. But I mean, other than that, if she didn't need any more breast surgery, what do you think about this point about the size of the tumor and validity of sentinel node? I guess in the hands of a good surgeon, I would have trusted this, but I would know that in the NSABP sentinel node trial that's been done, we already know there's like a 9% false negative rate in that randomized trial, so we know it's not perfect. Did she have one or more sentinel nodes? One sentinel, one non-sentinel node were in the original biopsy. So, Dr. Picard, in addition to this issue about the axillary dissection, let's assume she has an axillary dissection and it's negative. How would you approach your therapy? When you look at the biological profile of this tumor, and of course size is something different. It indicates more the evolution, the stage. So if you look at the biological profile, there is only one factor that is worrisome there. It's the grade 2. Otherwise, this tumor is highly endocrine-responsive with a very high expression of both receptors and no expression of HER2 to any significant degree. Well, indeed, I think that the treatment that is going to be most important for this woman is endocrine therapy and that it needs to be optimized. And there, of course, there is this dilemma between starting with an aromatase inhibitor or selecting the switching strategy. Now, usually when I have this kind of profile and assuming that she is not negative, I give a preference to the sequencing strategy because I think duration of endocrine therapy is important for these tumors. They tend to relapse even late between year 5 and 10, and this woman is still very young. So I think I would like to cover her for more than five years. If I start with an aromatase inhibitor, I don't know if it's going to be possible to go on for more than five years. There are very little data so far on very prolonged AI therapy in terms of quality of life. 
and all these things. So it's likely that I would go for two years of tamoxifen and switch then to an AI and give the AI possibly for five years. Now, the chemotherapy question is, of course, the very difficult question here. And that's why we have these trials running now, Taylorix and Mindact, and I think they are incredibly interesting for this type of clinical scenario. If she was grade one, and if that was confirmed by another pathologist, and I would be absolutely sure about a very gentle biological profile, I would not offer chemotherapy. It's the grade two that, you know, is problematic and indicates that indeed a clinical trial like Taylorix or Mindact would be interesting. What about a non-protocol therapy? When would you order an archetype or the mammoprint, which is the assay being studied in the Mindact trial? Well, first of all, we never order the mammoprint outside the clinical trial. For the Oncotype DX, it's only under very special circumstances that we order the test. First of all, it's not very easy in Europe because you have to send your tumor block to California. But we will do that when an extensive pathology review by a very good pathologist leaves you with uncertainty. So in this case, for example, you could also ask for proliferation, some measurement of proliferation. KI67, for example, if that would come back 5%, and I trust the pathologist is really experienced, I don't think I need Oncotype DX. I think the recurrent score is going to come back low. Now, if the KI67 is 20%, for example, it's a little more difficult, and then it would be a situation where I think I would order the test. Edith, would you comment a little bit on Dr. Picard's thoughts, starting with the issue of starting with tamoxifen? We utilize the sequential strategy of tamoxifen followed by AI practically only in one group of women, and those are the women who develop amenorrhea following systemic chemotherapy when we are not really sure of the menopausal status of the patient. In a patient who's 65 years of age, our typical approach is to start with an aromatase inhibitor based not only on the overall efficacy over tamoxifen, but also the side effect profile of the AI compared to tamoxifen. We are right now using aromatase inhibitor for five years. Certainly, there are trials looking at longer duration, and we are not extending though beyond the five-year period, at least as part of our day-to-day practice. It's kind of interesting, if you think about it, that this lady would have gotten a pretty different view from the three of you. I don't think that's the case. I think that she would have heard about all the alternatives. Uh-huh. And what's going to come down to is what, you know, what's the additional benefit of chemotherapy in her situation? Everybody's going to talk about all those things. Would you have brought up the alternative of no chemo, Edith? No. I would have talked to her about the trial that was done, and I would have given her the data, though, so that she knew where the recommendation came from. Right. So I'm assuming you would tell her what you think chemotherapy is going to add on. Exactly. So why don't we continue on, and if you can just go right to where we are right now with this lady. Sure. My practice is in northern New Jersey, across the Hudson River. The surgery was performed just east of the Hudson River in a large city near us by a very good surgeon. And what was done was a simple mastectomy with two additional axillary lymph nodes removed at the time of mastectomy, which were both negative. Interestingly, in the mastectomy specimen, there were still areas of infiltrating lobular carcinoma, very small amount, however, two to three millimeter, but in other quadrants of the breast. So this was a multifocal tumor and there was LCIS within the breast. I did speak with her about the Taylor X trial and the Oncotype DX, despite the fact that she had actually come to my office expecting to receive chemotherapy. 
she was not eligible for the Taylor X by size. Five centimeters was the cutoff, so she was, in fact, not eligible for the trial. I said that I felt that at age 65, with strongly estrogen and progesterone receptor positive tumor, that I would be comfortable obtaining the oncotype. And if she were in the very low risk group, that is with an oncotype score less than 11, that I would be comfortable treating her with hormonal therapy based on the characteristics of her tumor despite the size. But that if, since she didn't fit the trial, I was able to say that I could make a decision for her, but if her oncotype score was in fact greater than 11, I would feel much more comfortable, whatever that score was, giving her chemotherapy followed by hormonal therapy. Could I ask what your experience has been with presenting the Taylor X trial to people? I'm O for about 10. And is it the chemo versus no that's the deal stopper? That is correct, yes. O for 10, interesting. In fairness, it's often a bias, both physician and patient. And in this case, I think had she even considered the Taylor X trial, I already had a bias that because of the size, I wasn't as comfortable unless the score was extremely low. And I would have had a little more difficulty in the intermediate risk. And we're going to ask Dr. Picard in a minute about the MINDAC trial, more about mammoprint. Can you continue with what happened? We made arrangements from this institution across the Hudson to send the material for the Oncotype DX. This was early in the week. About two days later, I received a very frightened phone call from the patient that she had just had her post-operative visit with her surgeon, who told her that under no circumstance could she be treated with hormonal therapy alone, and that in the surgeon's experience, she had to receive chemotherapy, and that it was irrelevant what the oncotype showed. And therefore, her expectation when she came to the office was to receive chemotherapy. And her surgeon told her that he would not be comfortable if she received anything other than chemotherapy followed by an endocrine manipulation. His office purportedly canceled the oncotype which I had ordered. (laughs) I say purportedly because it was not canceled. So the results are known. (laughs) (laughs) We're waiting. Interesting dynamic there. (laughs) Teamwork. Eight. Eight Eight. was the score. Eight Eight. is the score? Eight was the score. Not surprising. (laughs) So the final thing is that I actually elected to treat her with four cycles of taxotir cytoxan based on Steve Jones's study, feeling quite comfortable that the toxicity may be comparable or even a little less than AC, that the cardiac toxicity may be less, and that although... I think it would be hard to really say absolutely, but the forest plot would suggest that there's a benefit seen in the ER-positive population that might be a little bit greater than AC. But I certainly wasn't doing it just for that reason, but I felt very comfortable in giving her four cycles of TC, taxotere cytoxan, followed by an AI without the switching strategy. She's only received one cycle. This is a brand new case, and she's due next week for her second cycle. She does not know yet what the Oncotype score was. The results came in actually a few days after she started her first cycle, so we're about to have a conversation. I did not call her to tell her that the Oncotype was low. I wanted to do that in a face-to-face, but really her perspective at this point is that she had to receive chemotherapy, and I'm not about to change that based on her surgeon's indication at this point. So if you hadn't had this difficult sort of psychologic situation to deal with and none of this other conflicting information had come through, do you think you would have just not given chemotherapy? Correct. I had discussed it with her. I was prepared if the oncotype score was very low 
that I would have been comfortable giving her an AI alone, or I don't think one could argue about a switching strategy. My plan was to give her an AI if she had a low Oncotype score. So the SWOG8814 trial didn't sway you, huh? But there was a 9% absolute difference in disease-free survival for patients who received chemotherapy, tamoxifen versus tamoxifen. Nancy? I think there are two parts on that one, Edith. First is that that was a node-positive trial and not a node-negative trial. And the other is that Kathy Albain has certainly presented, though she Mm -hmm. has not published any of this, but she has presented information to suggest on that trial that women that had one to three positive nodes Mm -hmm. with positive estrogen and progesterone receptor and her Mm -hmm. two negative status got no benefit from CAF chemotherapy on top of tamoxifen. So we'd have to do a lot of extrapolation, but it does make you wonder whether or not there are biological subsets where chemo, at least of the kind we're giving, doesn't add very much. And I wonder if this is such a patient. Am I correct in saying they're actually going to try to do oncotype on those patients? We are actually working very hard to try to set that up. When do you think we might, because I haven't seen any data on oncotype and node positive, right? We think it's a perfect trial for it. I believe that Kathy Albain is pushing forward with it very vigorously. I don't know when we're going to see it. So we don't know. Yeah, that'd be really interesting to see. Dr. Picard, can you talk a little bit about the print assay in terms of what it is, how it's done, and what the MINDEX study is? So the MAMA print refers to a 70-gene signature that you obtained through the microarray technology. So the disadvantage of that is that, of course, it requires a frozen sample today. Maybe that's going to change in the next few years. It just got commercialized very recently in the U.S., not in Europe. And the remark I made for Oncotype is valid for MamaPrint. I think it's going to be very important to validate the benefit of this signature above and beyond the clinical and pathological factors that we are using in daily clinical practice in a prospective randomized trial, which has not started indeed. One of the issues about that assay is it requires fresh tissue. How much of an impediment do you think that's going to be? Well, it's certainly not going to be easy, but we have already done in Europe trials requiring fresh frozen tissue, and it is working, at least in a number of cancer institutions. We depend heavily on the surgeons and the pathologists, but we do have centers where this is feasible. And can you talk a little bit more about the design of the MINDAC trial and the eligibility? The design is very similar to the design of Taylorix in the sense that the 6,000 women will be evaluated by two methods. One is the 70 gene signature, which is going to be obtained for all women. And the second method is the adjuvant online software that we are going to use. So at the time of randomization, you will enter in the computer all the different characteristics of the patient and the tumor, and you will get immediately a prediction of the 10-year outcome. And that will allow you to classify the patient into high-risk or low-risk clinically. And then when the results of the signature are back, high-risk or low-risk based on the genomic tool. And then, of course, when the two tools are going to give the same results, the patients are not going to be randomized if they are both indicating high-risk, chemotherapy is going to be given. If they are both indicating low-risk, most of these patients will get endocrine therapy. And one-third of the women will fall in an intermediate group there where the results are discordant. Now, what is really interesting is that when the results are discordant, most of the time, 80% of the time, 
the gene signature indicates low risk and adjuvant online indicates high risk. And when you say high risk and adjuvant online, what kind of numbers? Well, that was the result of a long discussion and a kind of compromise between all the investigators. So we set the cutoff at 88% 10-year disease-free survival for ER-positive and 92% for ER-negative on the basis that the ER-positive patients receive endocrine therapy and that is going to improve their outcome by a few percent absolute. So Nancy, this test is available in the United States. Are you going to use it or are you using it? We got a lot of phone calls about it. (laughs) (laughs) An awful lot. I don't think that we're going to take it on right now because one of the problems we faced is when we do it, we're not quite sure what to do about the information. With the Oncotype assay, we have at least some information that if you have this, then you might consider that. With the Mind Act, I'm not quite as sure about that. Also, in our practice setting, I have a feeling that doing something on fresh tissue is going to be a tough task because we have a lot of people who do what your patient did, surgery here, medical oncology there, so it may be logistically more difficult. But I'm really looking forward to the results of the MindAct trial. It's going to be great to see. One of the advantages is that we are going to analyze the full genome on all the patients because we think that perhaps in a few years from now, the 70 gene signature will be outperformed by better signatures. And that is, of course, the richness of the trial. It will allow to look at many other things. I think this really points out why we present real patients, because it's never as simple as when you just put up a bunch of numbers, and I think this case really illustrates it. Dr. Moss? There are obviously different features about lobular carcinomas that we all know about. Is there enough data on lobular carcinomas with Oncotype DX, the lobulars looked at separately, that we can actually validate it in the same way that we validated the ductal carcinomas? And do we need to? That's a very good point, and one that I had not heard addressed in meetings, because I do not think those data exist. Those trials took lobular carcinoma, right? Yes, but but has that subset been looked at separately, and... Do they have statistically significant data if they have looked at it? Yeah, so I know that the genomic health company has been, not surprisingly, amalgamating all their data. I think I heard recently that they've now done 20,000 analyses as part of, I guess, practice us sending things in. So you would wonder whether or not with time they'll be able to help us with some of those kinds of things. That'll be pretty dependent on having some sort of agreement between pathologists that everybody would agree it's a lobular, not a ductal, because there's always a lot of kind of gray, at least in my experience, on some of these calls. That's an interesting question. My other question is just a practical one. With aromatase inhibitors, we sometimes see, in fact, more than sometimes, vaginal atrophy and symptomatic vaginal atrophy. I typically use S-string in those cases, but there has been some data presented that with one of the other ones, I think it was S-trace, there is sufficient absorption that you cancel out much of the effect, and I'm wondering how you handle that problem. Nancy? (laughs) Thanks, Neil. (laughs) (laughs) It is a really common problem right now, and I guess we go down the route first of all, the kind of topical things, you know, replens and astroglide and all those sorts of things, and I hope that that's going to make it better. And if it doesn't, I usually send patients to their gynecologists. Mitch Dowsett did do this study, as I understand it, and I think it was S-Trace, where they did see measurable levels of estrogen in these women who were taking some of these creams. And so it's made me less inclined. I mean, I basically talk with patients about, you know, we don't quite know what to do about this, what's the most important to you. And I have several who are taking S-Trace or something like that, because when they balance out the pros and cons, it's pretty easy where the priority is. 
Dr. Patterson? I don't know if it makes a difference. We've been measuring. It makes me feel better. We've been doing the ultra-sensitive estradiol assay. Yeah, can you get the assay? Because it has to be a very sensitive assay. They're not usually the -the run-of-the-mill ones. So in most patients, not seeing an increase, mostly with Vagifem, but also with the estering. And may just be giving me some assurance, and I'm not Mm -hmm. sure that I can say that it's clinically important, but at least I haven't seen a rise in the estradiol level as measured. The other thing I do in some of those women is we change to tamoxifen, which is, after all, a really good drug, which often doesn't have quite the vaginal atrophy if she hasn't had it before. What about the arthralgias with aromatase inhibitors, Nancy? What's your experience with them, and what's your management strategy? Yeah, we're involved in this study at Hopkins, this pharmacogenetics study, where patients are being randomized between exemestane and letrozole, and it had some trigger points for arthralgias and for rheumatologic evaluations and things like that. And I must say, it's a far higher percentage than we thought it was going to be. And I don't know whether if you start asking, you know, you find out things are going on that patients don't bring to your attention. It seems to be real. Most people seem to be able to live with it. We've been using non-steroidals or whatever they want to do. And a few patients I've had, it's been very severe, and they've stopped, and then we go back and we regroup, and we think about something like tamoxifen, or occasionally we try another aromatase inhibitor, although I'm not sure in my practice that that's been a successful strategy. In the manuscript that just came out in JCO February the 10th, where they looked at the safety of, and efficacy of the big 198 trial, the rate was 13% for the tamoxifen and about 20% for patients receiving the aromatase inhibitor. Statistically significant. Dr. Hahn? Another question is that determination of menopausal status in a patient with TH. So hysterectomy without hysterectomy, the ovaries yeah. being taken out. So you end up checking those hormones. And yeah, what are the guidelines? Yeah. So I don't think there are any hard and fast guidelines. I suppose that you would hope for a pattern where the gonadotropins are high and the estrogen is low. And I guess for me, if it's a borderline picture, those are the kinds of peoples where I wouldn't use an aromatase inhibitor. I would go with tamoxifen until it seemed more compelling if the clinical situation suggests that she might be of a perimenopausal age. One of the things I did, because I ran a trial that had to do with Gozerlin some years ago, is I looked at hormone levels that were drawn on 1,500 women across the United States in a serial fashion. It's kind of (laughs) scary. There are a lot of different labs out there. There are a lot of different guidelines. There are a lot of different ranges that are offered. So I don't think that there's a hard and fast thing where we could say, you know, these are the numbers that would say she's pre- or postmenopausal. I actually talked to my gynecologic oncology colleagues because I wanted some help, and they said, well, Nancy... The definition of menopause is no periods for a year. That's it. Can you comment on where we are in terms of hormonal therapy and the premenopausal patient, Nancy? And I want Martine to also talk about the big studies that are looking at that question. How do you approach these patients off study? And can you comment on the trials that are being done? Yes, I'm a big believer in tamoxifen. You know, I think that we didn't recognize its value in premenopausal patients for a long time, only relatively recently. And so all of the trials that we did that had to do with ovarian suppression, unfortunately, didn't use tamoxifen optimally. Having said that, we have a nice overview that was just presented at San Antonio for the first time of LHRH agonists, and then we have the bigger overview that looks at ovarian ablation and suppression strategies. And I think it looks like it's a very good therapy. The combination therapy of ovarian suppression plus tamoxifen is probably every bit as good as many chemotherapies plus tamoxifen. And there's information that's certainly emerging to suggest that Maybe ovarian suppression would add on to chemotherapy for women who remain premenopausal after their chemo. I am a big believer in the trials that are being done internationally, that both the SOFT trial, which is tamoxifen versus ovarian-targeted therapy plus tamoxifen versus ovarian-targeted therapy plus AI, 
I'm not as big of a believer in the text trial, although I think many people are, a trial that looks at just the two combination hormone strategies. And that trial is actually moving nicely towards its accrual goal. So I think that we can hope we'll see that answer in the not-too-distant future. And I'm still a big, big proponent of the soft trial because that's, I think, our biggest question. Can you comment a little bit on the issue of ovarian suppression in terms of how effective it is monthly versus Q3 monthly choice of agents? The trials that have been done were essentially all of them done with the monthly preparations because that's what was available at the time that they were done. You know, at one point I actually talked with one of the companies about their three-month preparation and they made the point that they hadn't actually ever tested it in premenopausal women, that they developed it for men who had prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't have the kind of biological correlates that we might like to see. As a consequence, if I'm going to do it, I must say I do do monthly therapy because I think that's what we have the best data about. And I guess... Also, Bob Carlson has done a study now looking at ovarian suppression plus aromatase inhibitors. It looks like using the monthly formulation, these patients are completely suppressed. Martine, any comments on the Tex and SOFT trial? Well, I also believe they are crucially important trials. The SOFT trial, I agree with Nancy, is extremely interesting and challenging, but in my institution, we didn't manage to put patients on this trial, probably because we have a strong bias that the combination of ion ablation and tamoxifen is going to be better. So we were removed from the list of active centers and we continue on the text protocol. If I may comment on the soft text and per care situation, we're strong supporters of the soft trial. As a second option, we also have the text study open at Mayo. And unfortunately, we had to close per care worldwide because of low accrual. However, we put a lot of effort into PERCA because we thought it was an important study to answer whether chemotherapy offered any benefit to patients who were undergoing ovarian suppressive therapy. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to put together a manuscript talking about the issues that are facing all of us because the question I will remain, although... Ultimately, this will be hopefully answered with the help of Taylor X and Mama Print because we'll have women getting hormonal therapy and they will tell us the ultimate outcome of these patients who get or get no chemotherapy. But it was a pity that we couldn't conduct per K at a global level. Dr. Picard, what about the use of ovarian suppression or ablation plus an aromatase inhibitor in a non-protocol setting? Are there situations where you would do that? I've done that under exceptional circumstances, although I confess that this is not at all evidence-based and should certainly not be recommended. But, you know, sometimes when you have to give care to very young women, very high risk, highly endocrine responsive disease, multiple positive nodes, they have young kids and they come to you and they ask you, personal advice. Sometimes I have been doing something which is even not studied in clinical trials, which is a switching strategy. So I start with, these are very high-risk women, very endocrine responsive. I start with tamoxifen and ovarian ablation. And then after five years, they come back to me and they say, so what to do now? And then I'm thinking, there are no trials, but why would prolonged endocrine therapy not work in these women and work in the older ones? It doesn't make any sense to me. Then I discuss with them. I tell them there are no data, but sometimes we consider them going on with a ablation and switching. To an AI. So I've been doing that, yeah. Nancy, any comments? I've done it in two cases. One is that I do use it in metastatic disease as part of a serial endocrine therapy. And the other is I've had a couple of people who, for some reason, we did have the monovarian suppression and tamoxifen. They had a clot on tamoxifen. 
So we had to stop the tamoxifen. They felt strongly about combination therapy. What about the issue of using an aromatase inhibitor after five years of tamoxifen? Obviously, we have the MA17 data, but what about the patient is out two, three, four, five years after having completed five years of tamoxifen? Nancy, at what point would you just not want to consider the AI? Again, in our practice, we recalled everybody who was within either four or five years of finishing tamoxifen because we were trying to correlate it with the MA17 trial. So I guess that's kind of the cutoff I've been using. I just can't see doing it for somebody who is 10 years out from her diagnosis of breast cancer, which is what you're talking about. If she's had five years of tamoxifen and then five years of observation, I'm just not seeing it unless something comes out with some of these prevention trials, for example. What about the issue of continuing an aromatase inhibitor? What to do with a patient who's been on the aromatase inhibitor for five years? Edith, how do you approach that? We have been stopping at five years. However, we're supportive of the two trials that are going to help us understand this, the NSABP trial and also the re-randomization of MA17, which actually will allow now for patients who have had five years of tamoxifen followed by five years of an AI to be re-randomized to stop the AI for five years or continue five additional years. Dr. Picard, any situations where you would continue the AI beyond five years? Yes, I've done that again in a few patients. You know, it's an individualized decision, and it depends on the quality of life of the woman, how she's tolerating the drug. You have to do a careful bone assessment, cardiac assessment. But if things go well, and again, you have a high-risk ER-positive disease, I occasionally continue for two, three additional years. Dr. Friedman? How about the converse? Is there a woman whose risk is so low that you might not want to go ahead and switch her to an AI after five years of tamoxifen? I, I have like a 50-50 yes. hit rate on that when I talk to yeah. patients. Yeah. I mean, we hit the end of five years of tamoxifen. We talk about the pros and cons, and I would say only half of my patients go on them. Somebody who had a really small node-negative breast cancer, very receptor positive, 70 years How old. Small? One centimeter. I mean, I don't think there's an absolute cutoff, but I try to show them the numbers that we get from the MA17 trial, and you know, that's not too exciting to a lot of patients, especially if you're somebody who pays $250 a month for her aromatase inhibitor. The numbers I've heard, and I think the numbers that roughly are in adjuvant online are after five years of tamoxifen, node negative overall, roughly 2% a year relapse. Node positive, roughly overall 4% a year <laughs> relapse. That doesn't mm-hmm. sound small to me. Depends on whose seat you're in. A lot of my patients think that is small, and others think, wow, write me the prescription. Do you agree with those numbers? Well, we only had the one trial. I think that's actually a set of numbers that are pretty evidence-based. Dr. Papp, quick question. If you're using tamoxifen, do you buy into the CYP2D6 or the fact that there are some pharmacogenetic interactions between some of the antidepressants? And how important is it when we have data sets that are huge with the use of tamoxifen, but should we be testing if we're going to put a premenopausal patient on tamoxifen as their adjuvant therapy, I mean, should we know for sure that they're not a slow metabolizer? That's a depressing question. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I actually work with Vered Stearns at Johns Hopkins, who's one of the people who really put this on the map. And so Vered is not doing that as a matter of routine in her practice right now, and therefore neither am I. Okay. So you're comfortable putting a young woman on tamoxifen, and if they need an antidepressant, are you comfortable Well, then I would try to use one of the ones that's not very much of an inhibitor. So you would would adhere to that. You just wouldn't measure CYP2. Yeah, and then the reverse is if somebody's got a stable depression on this medicine for five years, I don't believe that I would alter her antidepressant regimen if I was starting on tamoxifen. I don't think I would find it that compelling that I would potentially throw her psychiatric treatment out of whack. We've also looked at some of this data 
And one is to be very careful with the retrospective nature and the selection of the patients for which we had two more specimens and appropriate follow-up. So we have not reached any conclusions related to this either, and that's why we are not doing routine to the six testing for patients who we are considering for tamoxifen therapy. There are too many other single markers that have also been reported to be predictive of benefit of adjuvant tamoxifen, and we think that multi-gene or multi-protein patterns are needed and not a single marker. It's worth pointing out the FDA had a hearing on that last fall, thinking about it in the context of the tamoxifen label. And I haven't seen a change in the tamoxifen label. I guess they could still be thinking about it, but they haven't done anything that I'm aware of. Dennis? Just a question on your use of Zometa. You know, the original approval was based on SREs after a median follow-up of something like 17 months. And now we've had patients living for years and years and years with bone metastases on Zometa. If you look at the standard recommendation every four weeks and now with cases of ONJ, this is an area that's really desperate for some guidelines because of all these complications that have occurred in the post-marketing setting. I'm curious as to, are you just continuing it indefinitely at four weeks or cutting back like we are in the myeloma population? What are you doing for someone who's five years out with stable bone metastasis doing well? Edith? I'm glad you're bringing up this question, critically important. What we've been doing so far is that we've been starting to space out the injections of the zoledronic acid in these patients who have stable disease for a while. Some clinical trials have been thought of very recently to look at this issue after stabilization, stopping or continuing the zoledronic acid. Additionally, there's another drug that is being looked at in that setting, which is denosumab, the monoclonal antibody against Rand Ligand. And I think it's going to be very nice to follow up on the data from those studies.